morning. So glad to see you guys here today. Those of you watching online, glad you're tuning in as well. We're closing out a series today called Leadership Lessons from Jesus. I'm super excited about it. Don't worry if you haven't been here the past couple weeks. I can sum up the entire series in one sentence for you, and that is this. Leadership isn't a position or a title. Leadership is influence. Jesus teaches us that leadership is not a position or a title. Leadership is influence. You don't have to believe me on that. I can prove to you that this is true because if you think about the person who has directly impacted you the most, the person that has really helped shape you into who you are today, I can guarantee you you are not thinking of someone who lorded their position or title over you. I can guarantee you are not thinking of someone who claimed to be a leader because they were in a position of authority. You're thinking of a parent or a relative or another friend, maybe a teacher or coach, maybe even someone from your church, but it was someone who humbly led you. And really the entire point of my message week one is that you are one of those things. You are a friend. You're a relative to somebody. Therefore, by default, you are a leader You have influence over someone, and so you are a leader. Ultimately, the question becomes, are you influencing them for good, or are you influencing them for bad? Because it doesn't matter who you are, what age you are, what socioeconomic status you are, you are influencing somebody. Just to drive that point home, just the other night, my six-year-old son, trying to get him to bed. I don't know how bedtime looks at your house, but at mine, it's not always just angels floating on pillows, playing their harps, and falling asleep, right? There's a lot of uh, just screaming. There's a lot of questions, and I need a drink. And then there's the kids, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're doing stuff too. I mean, it's just uh, uh, nonetheless. We're getting ready for bed. Leighton reminds me, we haven't prayed the past couple of nights. I'm like, you know what? You're right, buddy. Why don't you pray tonight? Because in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm praying I don't choke you out like Bart Simpson. So I'm praying, you know. <laughs> Why don't you lead this one tonight, buddy? And, and, and that's, you know how convicting it is to have your child remind you in all sincerity that, that we haven't prayed the past couple of nights, Dad. Yes, yeah, that's my point. We all have influence. You can be a child and still have influence. So my goal in week one was to help you understand that you have influence. So how you lead yourself matters. Last week, I chatted with you about how to lead your life, your school, your work, your home, all of it. It can be led well. And my point last week was that influence is not fame or power or authority or wealth. And influence is not given for your benefit. We, all, we would call that manipulation, not influence. Influence is about serving others. And you can lead well in all those aspects of your life if you're serving well. In other, way, in other words, the pathway to influence is service. I know it sounds crazy, but the way God has designed and wired the universe to work is that the way to fulfillment is service and sacrifice. So if you missed any of those messages, you can check them out online this morning. I want to talk to you about leading your church. We've talked about leading yourself. We've talked about leading your life. I think Jesus has some things that, that we need to learn about leading your church. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wait, pastor, you lead the church. What do, we, what do we have to do? Hold that thought. It's a fair thought, but bear with me for a few moments. If you've been here a while, you've probably heard me say that my undergraduate degree is in history and political science. 
didn't think about becoming a pastor until a few years ago, and that was due in large part to people who had influenced me. So I went to school uh, thinking that I was going to become a teacher and a coach, and ultimately I was going to win a national championship, ultimately then someday become governor or senator or something in politics. So my, yeah, absolutely. Hey, why not? My path uh, to get there then was uh, history and political science. In college, I had a fantastic teacher who uh, taught a class called the History of World War II, bar none, my favorite class of all time. Loved it. So in this movie that you've maybe heard about, Dunkirk came out, couldn't wait to go see it. Now with three kids trying to finish the house, still haven't got a chance to go see it. I'm working on it, but I will just uh, so we're all on the same page though. You don't know what I'm talking about. I brought a clip for you to check out uh, Dunkirk. So go ahead and check this out. when they can pick us off from the air like a fish in a barrel. There are 400,000 men on this beach. Dunkirk. Look at that. There's no hiding from this sun. We have a job to do. If we go there, we'll die. see it from here. What? Home. Looks good, right? Anybody seen it yet? Fantastic. One of you, good. Hey, well, a couple of you. Okay, good job, good job. I'll, I'll, I'll have time to dissect the entire battle for you. I know what you're thinking. What in the world? How is he going to connect this to church? I promise you we're getting there, but I can't dissect the battle for you or what happened or the Western Front. My point in showing you the Klimt is simply to introduce you to an idea called the Dunkirk spirit. In short, the Dunkirk spirit basically refers to the human spirit, that when rallied together, people can accomplish more than what they thought possible. So in the back of your head, I want you to be thinking about that, this idea of Dunkirk spirit, strength in numbers, accomplishing more than you ever believed you could. That being said, if you brought a Bible, 
I want you to go ahead and grab it. You're going to open it up towards the back section called the New Testament, a book called Acts. If you've been here a while, you should have no problem finding that because we just got, got done going through 10 weeks in the book of Acts through May and June. So we're talking about leadership lessons from Jesus. I want to uh, show you a story from the life of Jesus. And so you want that very first chapter in Acts. That's the big number one. And you'll want verse 12, little number 12. Okay. It reads, then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of half a mile. Pause. Return from what? Right? You ever jump into a story part way and you're like, hold on, what, what just happened before all that? They're returning from watching Jesus ascend in to heaven. Okay, I know it sounds crazy, but I'll just lay my cards out on the table. Uh, what we believe as a church and what I believe personally is that Jesus is God. I believe that he was murdered, which just for the record, nobody really debates that anymore. There's just too much secular evidence pointing to a crucifixion, uh, so nobody really debates that. And uh, a guy named Jesus was crucified, and we believe that, but what's argued is what happened afterwards. I choose to believe that he rose from the dead, which he said he was going to do. And for 40 days, he was on this planet, but then he ascended into heaven. These are eyewitnesses that witnessed that event. They are returning from that event. Okay, verse 13. When they arrived, they went to the upstairs room of the house where they were staying. Here are the names of those who were present. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. Luke's not recording these names just for our benefit. He remember he's writing a a letter to a guy and 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 he's saying, Hey, if if you don't believe these things happen, there's the eyewitnesses to the event. You can go talk to any of these people about what happened. Verse 15. During this time, When about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Time out. Something to think about. These 120 believers are some of the only people on the planet who saw Jesus raised from the dead and descend into heaven. Okay, and if you read on, you're going to see how the Holy Spirit fills each one of them, and they go on to start the global phenomenon that is the Christian church. Because they trusted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they go on to change the world. Now, there's more probably than 120 of us in here right now, so let's imagine that we're some of the only people on the planet who know Jesus. What would you do? Could you change the world like these folks did? What's this have to do with Dunkirk? Okay, follow me here. Your community, where you live. It's your part of the Western Front. And just like the soldiers in World War II and just like the civilians at Dunkirk had a mission, we each have a mission. What's our mission? Easy. Jesus gave it to us in Matthew 28, 18. It's called the Great Commission because we're on a mission with Jesus. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. See, the reason I bring up this idea, the spirit of Dunkirk, it's because those people believe that with each other helping anything was possible. They believe that they could do it together. So let me ask you, 
Do you believe that anything is possible? Do you believe that with God we can complete this mission to go into all nations and change the world on his behalf? I'll just tell you, I, I believe that we can do that. In fact, one of my long-term goals for us in this place as a church is that we'll send at least one member of our church to every country of the world to share the gospel. It's 196 countries. Mathematically, we could probably already do that. I know we can check at least two countries off the list. We just sent a group to Haiti, and we've got some people in Turkey right now. So we got two done. And I know what you're saying. You're saying, that's absurd, Pastor. How can we ever accomplish something like that? Well, Matthew 9, 29, Jesus says, according to your faith, it will be done. Maybe I'm just crazy enough to believe that we can do this that we can go to all nations, that we can change the world. I'm just believing what the Bible said. So if that makes me absurd, then yeah, I, prob- I guess I'm absurd. I'll take that. See, some of you, God brought you here today just to hear me say that if you don't take any risks, then you don't need any faith. And the Bible doesn't have anything good to say about people who are unfaithful. It's time for you to get involved and take some risks and step out of your comfort zone. For some of you, it's time for you to take ownership of your church. And this is your church, I hope so. It's time for you to start leading and influencing if this is the place that you call home. If you're a guest, I'm glad you're here, but let me talk to those who called this place home for a little while. Let me ask you again, if we were the only people on the planet who knew Jesus, what would we do? Let me ask you a really hard question, something that impacted me heavily when I was in my study this week. If God were to answer your prayers just this past week, how many people would have accepted Christ simply because you prayed for them? That hit me hard. We should be praying by name for people who don't know Jesus. If you're not praying for the lost daily, you should be, and you should be praying for them by name, which means you've got to get involved with some people who don't know Jesus. Come on, somebody. That's good. I think it's one of the things that the American church has got wrong. By and large, we as a church, people have resigned ourselves from being disciples of Christ. So what we pay pastors for. They're the ones that are the disciples, except 1 Peter 2.9 reminds us that you, plural, are a royal priesthood. You all are a royal priesthood. 1 Corinthians 12.7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. You're a royal priesthood priesthood, given the good news of the gospel, why for the common good of the people around you? Let me say it this way. New Anthem's success is dependent upon your willingness to be involved and use your gifts to influence not only the people in this room, but the people who are yet to come into this room. I'm going to show you something else from Ephesians 4. Check this out. Paul writes, therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. For you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Was that country song? Always be humble and kind, something like that? I don't know. I don't listen to country music. Nonetheless, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. We have hope, people. 
Verse 5, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and living through all. However, he has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say when he ascended to the heights, we just witnessed that happen, he led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. What are those gifts? Verse 11, now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do His work and build up the church, the body of Christ. In other words, I'm not the pastor of this church. You all are the ministers of this church meant to equip and build up the body of Christ. My job is to equip you for this mission that we're on. In all reality, when we gather together here on a Sunday, I'm in the middle of a pastor's conference. My job is to equip you for service. My job is to prepare you for the battle you're fighting on the western front of Park City, Valley Center, Newton, Wichita, Bel Air, Hillsboro, Heston, Halstead, Elbing, Sedgwick, and wherever else you're from. I just know those are the communities that we have represented here this morning. You see, you all are the leaders of the church. Your influence is what makes this place go. How long will it last? Well, verse 13 says, This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard, standard of Christ. How long will it go in one word forever? Because as long as we depend on God and we make disciples, we'll never reach full maturity this side of heaven. Because God is eternal. There's always something new to explore about him. And you know, I'm a practical guy. I like to give you next steps. So what are some things you can do in order to make a difference, in order to lead this place well, in order for us to have the global impact that, that I believe we should have as laid out in Matthew chapter 28. What are some things you can do? Well, first of all, you can start serving on a team. Not because we need anything from you, but because we want something for you. God said our church is not as good as it can be unless you are involved. And so we need your gifts, talents, and abilities to help reach other people for Christ. Listen to this. This came from a survey that we give to new folks. If you're new here, I'm going to send you an email. hope you can fill out the survey. Here's one of the ones that were, excuse me, returned to us. Even though the church meets at a school, you do a great job not making it feel like I'm out of school. The small things done in the bathroom and the setup in the gym goes a long ways to make it feel like a church coming together rather than having a meeting at school. Guys, those things don't just happen. These curtains didn't magically raise up. These chairs didn't just set themselves. The bathrooms were not set up by themselves. I'm just crazy enough to believe that you might actually help make those things better. Like if there's anything in here that is unappealing to you, you might be able to communicate that to us and, and figure out how we can do some things better. But you have to be involved. You have to be serving in order to do that. What else can you do? You could become a member of our church. That involves going through our next process. Again, starts August 6th. If you know you're coming, you can just let us know that on your connection card. But if you're, if you're not sure yet, you can still just come next week, show up. 
I'll order plenty of food. Trust me, it's never been uh, a situation where you haven't had enough, okay? Uh, and it's a free meal, so you can't beat that. But you can join our church and our mission. That's what we're really about, communicating the gospel to as many people as we can. I just think more people knowing Jesus is better than less people knowing about Jesus. Amen, somebody, okay? So I want you to be part of that mission with us. Next thing you can do, get involved with a small group. Believe this is where life change can happen for you. Our uh, groups typically meet in three semesters, and so we generally have August off, depending what type of group you're in. You can get kind of settled in, back from vacation, get the kids ready for school, all that. And then in September, we're going to kick groups off again. Now, look at again at Ephesians 4.3. This is a big deal. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. You can't do that by yourself. You can't be united to the church by yourself. You've got to get into a group, which also means, listen to me, that we're going to need more groups starting. In the fall, we generally average over 200 people on a Sunday, and so we're going to need roughly 15 to 20 small groups to get everybody into a group so they can be ministered to and discipled, because that's what God told us to do, to make disciples, not just converts. I can help you do this, so you don't have to worry about how to. It's super easy. I want to teach you how to host a group. What's that mean? Do you have a heart for people? Can you open your home? Can you serve a snack or, or get the people within your group to help organize serving a snack? And can you turn on a DVD or a study? If you can do that, you can host a group. I can teach you everything you, else you need to know about leading a small group. In fact, I'm going to do just that August 16th at 7 o'clock in the office. We're going to have small group leader training. I'm going to teach you how you can have people to your home or to the office or wherever you need to meet to help disciple them show you that you can be a part of this mission with us. Okay, last thing, I'm going to explain it, and I'm going to tell you what you can do about it. Okay, so clearly there are leadership responsibilities that every person in this room needs to take ownership of. There's influence that you can have within this body, but there's also leadership responsibilities that are more than just serving or, or becoming a member or getting involved in a group. It's, it's leading the church. There's leaders of leaders. The Bible, the term that it uses most frequently is called the elders, okay? It outlines the qualifications and the responsibilities an elder must have. And, and do in order to be considered an elder. I don't have time to read them all, so you're going to have to maybe write these passages down, check them out for yourself. But it's in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. It's qualifications for eldership. But here's what we're asking you. You might remember Jesus had 12 disciples. One of them betrayed Jesus. That's when he was crucified. That man, Judas, ultimately took his life. So back in Acts 1, 21, it says, so now we must choose a replacement for Judas from among the men who were with us the entire time we were traveling with the Lord Jesus. From the time he was baptized by John until the day he was taken from us, whoever is chosen will join us as a witness of Jesus' resurrection. So they nominated two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice. I don't know why people had so many names back then. It's very confusing, but it is what it is. And Matthias. Then they all prayed, 
O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen as an apostle to replace Judas in this ministry. For he has deserted us and gone where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and Matthias was selected to become an apostle with the other eleven. Here's what we're not asking you to do. Cast lots on anybody. Okay, we're not throwing the dice on somebody to, to let them be in church leadership. What I'm asking you to do is nominate some men for this leadership role. We have four elders now. We want to add at least one more just because of our size and the responsibility that eldership requires. So who do you think could help lead this church? I believe that as leadership goes, so goes the people. But before you nominate anybody, I want you to look again at Acts. In verse 24, it says, Then they all prayed, O Lord, you know every heart. Show us which of these men you have chosen. Chosen. That's what I'm asking you to do. Pray for God to reveal who this man or men should be. You might recall in the Old Testament that the people of Israel got in a lot of trouble when they picked kings based on what they wanted. That's not what we want. What's God want? Now listen, because if you've been paying careful attention to my words, you've heard me say that we're taking the names of men. What about women, pastor? Quite frankly, we believe that eldership, as outlined in your Bible, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, is reserved for men. Now hang on. Before you label me some sort of chauvinist or a sexist or anything like that, walk out of here. I would love to have some more conversation with you about this and on this topic, but here's what you have to do. In order to engage me in that conversation, here's how your sentence cannot start. Well, pastor, I believe. Well, pastor, I think. No, 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 no. No, you take me to your Bible and you say, pastor, what about this? This, this is how we dictate anything that happens in this church, okay? We believe this is the rule book and handbook for everything that goes on. It's our governing authority. I have nothing to say if I'm not saying something out of this book. Amen, somebody. So if you're going to engage me in this conversation, say, Pastor, I, I'm, not, I'm not finding the same things that you're finding, then you've got to take me to this book, okay? And I'd be happy to engage you in conversation around eldership. But I want to kind of show you what I think the Bible teaches. You might want to jot this down. Eldership is not a rank. It's a role. Eldership is not a rank. It's a role. Just like the Trinitarian Godhead that we worship, is three distinct persons, all distinct in function, but one in essence. Just like they reflect unity and love by having different roles, God's church should reflect unity and love and the Trinity by having different roles. You can see this for yourself in your Bible. Jesus says, God the Father is His Father. He's obedient to Him. Obedient so much that he dies on a cross. But God the Father, we see, says, I've given the whole world to my Son. Every knee will bow to him in worship. Plus the Holy Spirit goes on to say, I testify everything to the Lordship of Jesus. So one God, three distinct functions, all having different roles. Nobody having a rank. The words theologians use for this often is complementarianism. 
It's a long word. There's not a quiz on that. But the Godhead complements each other with distinct roles, not ranks. In the same way, men and women are to complement each other. And it's not oppressive or unjust in any way because God is modeling that for us right now. Think about this. I've never met the woman who said, Pastor, I'm going to leave my husband because all he does is use his power to bless me. He's just constantly loving me and serving me and causing me to flourish. He's taking care of the kids. He's providing. Just makes me sick. I'm leaving. Never, I've never met that woman. But I have met the woman who said my, my husband won't lead. He's passive. I've met the woman who says my husband is abusive. He's authoritative. He just commands me to do things, and I'm leaving. In neither case is that man serving God the way that we would require an elder to serve God. Those men would not be welcome to be leaders in this church. It's why we need you to nominate people because we can't see everything that maybe you see. You know, we, we might need to hear some things about men and what they're really like in life. You know, maybe you grew up with these people that you're going to nominate and or, or when we bring nominations to you, you need to communicate to us some things that you might know about these people. We need to know who these men really are. But let me just say one more thing about this idea of complementarianism, and I'm going to tell you exactly what elders are supposed to do. Okay? Uh, a book called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, A Case for Gender Roles in Ministry. It's written by a woman, by the way. Highly recommend it. She says, women are encouraged to be active verbal participants in the life of the church, teaching, exhorting, encouraging, and contributing in every way, in every way, except the office of elder where teaching and doctrine are judged according to the scriptures. So the office of elder is reserved for men, but the Bible says a married couple is one. So in a very real way, women help lead this place. But at the end of the day, it's their husbands who are answer the call. Does that make sense to everybody? A couple of you are nodding your head. Okay, hopefully we're all on the same page. So let me tell you exactly what elders do here at this place. Okay, elders starts with E. I got six E's for you. Why? I don't know. It's just what I do. Okay, number one, elders are to emulate Christ. Took me a long time to come up with that E word, by the way, but I did it. This is a servant role. Jesus said he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. This also means that the men in this eldership role are to have character qualifications and integrity in accordance with Jesus. They will not be perfect men, but their trajectory will, be, trajectory will be up and to the right because they are working hard at leading like Jesus. Their life needs to be reflective of Christ. Number two, they need to evaluate opportunities. All kinds of opportunities present themselves within the life of church. Things like how the money is spent. Should we purchase real estate? Who to hire? Who to fire? On and on down the line it could go. But elders are responsible for evaluating opportunities. Any opportunity that comes uh, up in governing the church, these are the men who make those decisions. There's no king here. My vote does not get any uh, heavier, you know, cast than anybody else's. Okay? So the elders evaluate opportunities. Number three, they enforce truth and justice. 
They judge what sort of things get taught. They need to understand the Bible. If I say anything heretical, they're the ones that scold me on those things, okay? So they need to understand what it is that they're talking about and teaching and what other people are teaching. If we have any guest pastors come in here, they'll judge them on what they say uh, as well. So they got to understand the Bible. Number four, equip the saints for ministry. We already talked about that. Our job as church leaders is to equip you for ministry. How best can you be serving not just this place, but your life, your school, your work, your home, all of it? How can we equip you for the battle that you're facing, teaching, mentoring, caring for you, counseling you, visiting you when you are sick? I can't do all those things. I'm sorry if I've ever hurt you because I was not available to you, but that's why we have elders. Okay, they're going to help assist me in all of those types of things. It's also why I want to get you in a small group so that those people can help pastor you as well. Okay? Number five, they empower others. They help turn you loose with your mission, gifts, talents, and abilities. They want to get to know you and figure out how you can best serve the world. So they're going to empower you to do that. And finally, number six, they envision the future. Bible says where there is no vision, people perish. So we want you to know where we're going, and we want you to know that we have a plan on how we're going to get there. And elders help envision that place for us. So again, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray that God will give you the name of somebody who can handle those six things. And then somehow I need you to get that name to me or one of the other elders via email, connection card, whatever it is. But take some time to really pray over this, uh, uh, text it, whatever you need to do. But really pray that God opens your heart and mind to who should help lead this place in the season to come. I'm going to close like this. God created you. He's given you a unique skill set with passions, experiences, capabilities, and talents that are only found in you. He's also given you a mission to go into all nations and make disciples. He's given you a vehicle in which you can accomplish that mission, and, and that is the local church, which is why the church is better with you involved. There's no one else on the planet like you. Ephesians talks about this, that God has given you a plan and a purpose for your life. And this is the vehicle in which you can use and deploy those things. We can't accomplish all that God has asked of us by ourselves. We're better together. We're actually going to start a series next week called Don't Do Life Alone. Because we're so passionate about this idea of getting you involved for your benefit and God's glory. But listen to me, pastors, you are a leader. You have influence. Are you influencing people for good or for bad? And if you want to get better, then God's ready for you to take your next step, whatever that looks like. Serving, becoming a member, getting in a group, whatever it is, hosting a group, Maybe for some of you it's to become an elder, regardless of what it is. The heart and vision behind the leadership of this church is to help you get there. We want to help you take your next steps in becoming a more fully devoted follower of Christ. Okay? Great. Let's pray.
God, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to come and gather in this place to learn more about you, to help equip each other for this mission. God, I believe we're better together, that, that we can accomplish way more together than we can apart. And so I just pray right now for you to speak to each person here this morning, to show them how they can take their next steps. God, pray that you are faithful to the leadership here to help equip people, to give them their next steps. God, we're praying right now for who those people need to be in the leadership capacity of this place to help us make more of an impact, to go to every nation like you commanded us to do and spread the gospel. God, make that vision a reality. And help each person here today to leave this place better equipped for the battle that they're going to face this week on their western front. And help them be encouraged with the soldiers you have placed around them. Above all things, God, may we make your name known to the people in our lives, by the way we live our lives. We just ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.